Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So Michael Messenger and I uh, had the opportunity to chat about a, a great deal of uh, things, uh, mostly about international development, about um, about compassion fatigue, about why he is doing what he does. He is now uh, the the new uh, president of World Vision Canada. Uh, he's been in the job for oh uh, several months, I think, and we are we get into it we get into it really quickly so i hope you're going to enjoy this we there there you know we talk about innovation we're talking about entrepreneurship and and, and we're talking about you know how do how do you remain inspired in such a cynical age and we talk about investing in young women and about education and about what what's going to make all the difference for uh the global south and frankly uh in turn for the global north as well so i hope you enjoy this and 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 uh listen in and again i'm hoping to do a part two with michael I know I say that about every interview pretty much that I do, and that is a real pleasure for me, that, that uh, there never seems to be quite enough time, and, and Michael and I really just started to, to scratch, you know, get beyond scratching the surface. So I trust there will be a part two. Check it out, uh, World Vision Canada uh, and uh, Michael Messenger. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We've got another uh, amazing guest with us here today, uh, the new president of World Vision Canada, Michael Messenger, joining us today. I think from Ottawa. Michael, thanks for uh, taking the call. David, my pleasure. Happy to join you. It's uh, it's always, um, I think, really interesting for me working in the field of social justice or international development or social change to be able to talk to a leader. And you're you're a leader of a pretty <laughs> pretty big organization, and uh, you know a lot of employees doing a lot of work around the world. Uh, Worldvision.ca. If uh, those of you out there don't know who we're talking about, check them out uh, while we're having a conversation with uh, the new president of, of World Vision Canada. So, Michael, how long, how long have you been in the new position, and w- what, what do you see in right out of the gate? You know, I have been in the position officially since June the 1st of uh, this year, so I think I'm on day 87 or 88. <laughs> you know, I, not that I'm counting. Right? That's right. 
Yeah, you got a whiteboard at the house, right? You got a whiteboard at the house with all the little lines on it. That's right. Although it's been a 25-year journey and wow. uh, of connection with World Vision. I started with World Vision actually right out of university okay. as an intern back in 1990. Wow. And my, you know, path went on to went to Geneva, Switzerland with World Vision and back oh, to Canada. I left for law school, practiced law for a while, was on the Canadian board, came back in 2007. And then fast forward to June 1st of 2015, and, and I got to uh, step into this That's amazing. Role. So when you came on as an intern, was that like an unpaid position? Like, were you like kind of like the bottom rung of the ladder at that point? Well, I was definitely bottom rung of the ladder, but it wasn't, in fact, a paid internship position. They were, it was interesting. I, w- I came out of university where I studied economics, wanting to make a difference in the world, basically. And I, I've had some international experience and a couple of, of some internships during university, which were, in fact, unpaid, um, and and wanted to use my skills and connected yeah. with World Vision. And they were interested in seeing how can we how can we build build a program for, for students like me who maybe had some innate leadership skills or some interesting experience, but not a lot of on-the-ground experience. So I spent the first 18 months at World Vision Working in every single department, you well, can believe it. I answered yeah, phones. Amazing. I did donors, donor mails, but I, I also also visited the field, did some work with church engagement. So it was a, it was a wonderful introduction to an organization that, of course, is is part of my life, and it's a, it's a mission that I resonate with deeply. It's you know, it's a question of you know, as a I'm an electrician, so I still hold my my IBEW non hmm. uh, uh, um, union card, non working. I pay my non working dues annually. I did a five-year, 8,500-hour apprenticeship. You must believe as a leader, I mean, having spent 18 months answering phones, cleaning washrooms, et cetera, you must believe in this idea of, of mentoring and sort of the, the passing off of the torch, if you will. Well, you know, I believe in it because that's what's, that is what set me on my career path. Hmm. Uh, I can think about, even before World Vision, significant people who came alongside me, took an interest in me, and provided me with an opportunity uh, that that was probably bigger than what I could possibly do, but encouraged me and supported me along the way. And that's why when I have an opportunity to mentor folks, and I've done that formally and informally, boy, it, it's incredibly rewarding, and, and it's something that, that World Vision we take really seriously, whether it's official mentoring or, or just leadership development for our staff, recognizing that we've got to learn and grow, and nothing compares to that one-on-one engagement with somebody that you respect and can help help uh, shape your life. Now, I know it because that's, that's what happened to me. Do you, re- do you ever remember a time when somebody uh, came alongside you and said, you know what, Michael, you're, you're destined for greatness. You're going to lead this organization one day. You've got, you know, qualities, uh, X, Y, and Z kind of qualities that others don't seem to have. That, did, you, did you have that, uh, a presence like that in your life, or did you get that from a variety of places? Well, it's really interesting. I don't think anyone actually ever said that to me, for which I'm grateful. Huh. Uh, because I, 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 I think the last thing I need in this kind of job is to have an outsized sense of, of, of you know, my own ability. Um, people right. have affirmed me along the way. What's really fascinating, though, David, is the person who hired me at World Vision uh, in, in, I think, the fall of 1989, Linda Tripp. She was a longtime uh, World Vision staff person. I know the, I know the name. Yeah, well, she just she recently spoke at the commissioning service that we had from World Vision, reflecting back on that. And she said, from the moment she met me, she saw me as a future, a future leader for World Vision. So I think it's one of those things where, even though perhaps it wasn't, they weren't telling me that to my face, even though I was getting good reviews along the way, I had people who believed in me and helped helped make it possible for me to to be all that God had created me to be. Right. You know, to, to look for the gifts, identify those find places to plug in and, 
and make a difference. And, and obviously found, really recognized in me, I suppose, somebody who not only had those skills kind of in the air, but uh, was deeply committed to and focused on the mission we have as an organization for, for the well-being of children around the world. So couple questions. I didn't, honestly, I didn't know it was 25 years. It's re- remarkable for a variety of reasons, but I guess I want to ask you a couple questions that are sort of linked. Feel free to answer them sort of all at the same time, if you like, but uh, Lester Pearson in the sixties was commissioned by Robert McNamara to write a report called partners in development. And it's quite, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's, it's available at your local library, probably not read very often. And it's really detailed. And if you were to read something from this today, I could quote something right now. It's on my shelf here somewhere. And you'd say to me, wow, that sounds like an article I read in the Globe and Mail yesterday. And, you know, it's like over 50 years. And so I, I guess my point is, is development workers today, uh, I, in some ways, are discovering things that happened 50 years ago and, and th- that were really not that much of a surprise to, to, to Lester Pearson and the group that he was with. In your 25 years, I mean, have things changed that much? Are people less generous today? Are they more generous? Have things, you know, do we live in a worse world than we used to? Are there more natural disasters? You know, I'm asking a pretty big question, I guess, Michael, but, yeah. but, uh, but it's, and it's related to, wow, it's related to everything, really. I guess I'm, I'm uh, cause I want to talk to you a little bit about entrepreneurship and innovation as well. But, um, yeah, anyway, big question. Well, yeah, I think that that there are always people who write at certain points, and Pearson is probably a good example. Like we can think of some others that who were, you know, were prophetic in a sense in their yes. times. So yeah, they yeah. were speaking about, they were describing a reality in front of them, but they saw implications for things down the line that maybe wouldn't enter into the mainstream uh, way of working for some time. I mean, if I even reflect back on the way World Vision has done its relief and development work. We started uh, as an organization founded by a missionary who was challenged to help one child and had to do it from back at home in the United States. Yeah, that was where the child sponsorship model. Pretty, pretty amazing, really. Yeah, really, and 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 it was in the context of an evangelistic campaign, and and you know there was not a lot of concept there around social justice as we think about it from a faith perspective. It's just sort of nascent ideas. Sure. Yep. And we think of the transfer of what that looks like. We've taken the core. What stayed the same is that focus on individual children as a reflection of the future of their communities and investing in kids. But it's gone from a handout kind of approach. So it started actually an institutional approach to a community-based approach that was much more handout to where we are today, which is trying to build sustainable, long-term partnerships with communities, recognizing that, that families... In communities, even children themselves are, this is a bit of lingo, but, you know, the agents of their own development. Mm-hmm. If, if we can't help equip them to be the entrepreneurs of the future, to, do, to contribute in a significant way economically, um, then we're, we're, once World Vision or other organizations leave, then things just, you know, they, they tend to revert back to the way they were before. So that's something that, that we have changed over the years and recognized, and I know that there have been people pushing us before our, our, our practice follows up with some of those ideas. But, but I would say this, David, in response to your question. What we can say is that while the kinds of things we grapple with in the world, children facing poverty and injustice, wars, conflicts, um, you know, significant changes, these, these things, they're all present. The way they're manifesting themselves right now, I would say, even based on my 25 years, are coming out in some in some some ways that are deeply deeply worrying, hmm. but also there are some some things afoot within this sector that I think are actually quite encouraging. Oh, good. So 
on the worrying side, as we think about the the emergence of of, of um, the vulnerability of children, for example, in in what are called fragile states. These are these are these are countries that kind of just barely hang on by their fingertips, if you'll forgive this metaphor, yep. where institutions don't work the way we think they are. Perhaps corruption is, is, is significant, or they're at risk of conflict, or they're just at the beginning of building institutions, and they're not quite there yet. It's in those places where you don't have that stable basis. It's very, very difficult to do long-term partnerships that will have impact going forward. And we see pockets of that all over the place. And we even see fragile contexts within a more fragile, in a more stable context. Sure. So yep. There are places, for example, in Kenya right now that are subject to instability. And Kenya, in the developing world, is actually uh, pretty stable, all things considered. Right, right. But, but there are places where those elements of fragility are kicking in, and all of a sudden, anybody who's vulnerable in that society is more vulnerable because the means of support disappear, or it gets more difficult to, to be good stewards of resources and ensure that funds or, or resources reach those in need. So we're seeing the rise of that, both uh, you know, because of just the, the, the instabilities in the world at the moment and, and particular conflicts. The conflicts that we are seeing feel more intractable than ever before, and, and less, we're less able to get our heads and, and arms around it. I would suspect, for example, that if Pearson were around today, he might look at some of the, the conflicts that we're dealing with, whether it's around ISIS or Boko Haram or some of these cross-border uh, terrorist or uh, you know insurgency groups, that they really don't they don't fit the classical ideas of warfare mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Right? There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's no belligerent on one side. It's it's very difficult. It's difficult to think of a policy response. And of course, from our perspective, it's really difficult as well to say how can we insert ourselves into those contexts in ways that build up for the long term and partner, but that, uh, you know, they kind of grapple with the complexities. Well, it's so such things a, are changing and they feel more complex. It's such, a, it's such an understatement to say that, that extreme poverty and all its lines of connection is such a complicated, nuanced um, issue. <laughs> it's yeah. such an understatement, yeah. isn't it? it? It absolutely is. Of course it is. And, and I guess... When I'm confronted with the idea of extreme poverty, you know, people ask me sometimes, "Is that something? You know, can we ever can we ever eliminate it?" And I, and I don't know the answer to that honestly, but I can tell you where I get my energy is about the sense the sense that I am at the core of my being, from my faith, from just who I am, my values. I am called to try to right. eradicate right. extreme poverty. Right? I mean, it's extreme poverty is the result of more than just economic deprivation or lack of, of resources. It's, it's about injustice. It's about uh, broken relationships. It's about uh, the way we engage together. I'd say, using from my Christian faith perspective, it's about sin, the way that we, we, we are just not living the world that God has created for us. Hmm. Um, and so in the midst of that, we want to be able to say there's something bigger here. The opposite of extreme poverty is actually what we would hold out to say God's vision for right relationships in the future, you know, we've talked about his kingdom, and live out of those values rather than mm-hmm. the values we see in extreme poverty. And that's where we're called to, and I think that's where we can begin to get our heads around how we might uh, might engage that. I don't know what the future holds. But the fact is I feel like I'm placed here right now, and I need to build on a future that I believe is out there um, and 
and try to help build an organization and equip our team and the communities that we're partnering with to to think about that, imagine something better. Michael, do you think we're do you think we're all called to try? I do believe we're all called to try. I think I think there's an element to it. I think there's It's a great title for a book, by the way. Yeah, that, you know, that's I'm gonna make a note of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I should say as an aside, people always say, So when are you gonna write your first book yeah. now the president of World Vision? I think, you know what? I think I'd better get my head around trying to run the place first before I start uh, <laughs> imparting wisdom to others. Um, Fair but, response. Yeah, I do think I do think we are all called to try. I think something uniquely human about wanting to be care care and and uh, be generous to others. I think there's something uniquely Canadian about the values that mm-hmm. we hold, mm-hmm. even in a multi- multicultural perspective. But I also think that particularly as Christians, we are called. You know, Jesus reduced the, the all of the law and the prophets down to two ideas: the right. idea of loving God and loving our neighbor. And loving our neighbor, I believe, is trying to work on the figure out those right relationships to the point that we can affect change in the lives of other people, particularly those in need, same way that God himself values, values the poor. We, we should be called there. And, you know, Jesus, later on in the Gospels, after he talked about loving God and loving neighbor, and you see Paul as well, they, they really double down on the loving the neighbor part. Right. Really, as, as the mark of, of his followers. So, just, you know, as people, as we care for others, as Canadians, as we think about the values that, that make our country so significant, you know, so, so positive, a place that people want to come to, all of, despite its faults, and particularly as Christians, I think we need to recognize that it is something that we're called to. That's where, that's where I get my sense of calling from all three of those places. Right. Uh, but I, I, I don't think it's just something unique to me, David. Do you, so, I mean, as I teach at Humber College, I, uh, a course in international development, I've been teaching there for about five, six years. And, and you, know, you know, you're in the field, you hang out, you get on the ground and so on, and you start to say, you know, you get angry. You know, you see a situation where you need 22, like I'm working on a project where we need about $20,000 for UXO clearance in northeastern Cambodia, and it's ground the project to a halt. And, and, and you know, some RPGs and ammunition and some unexploded mines and so on. And so you get angry about that. And you go, for the love, $20,000, I mean, it's just, it's nothing. And so I find I struggle with sometimes this, this, this hopeful idealism and this deep, rooted sort of cynicism, almost anger in a sense that, mm-hmm. holy cow, how do I get people to care more? How, I think that's why I asked you the question about being called to try. So, so we we're called to love our neighbors, you know, second greatest commandment. Um, I guess I want to connect the question to sort of a donor fatigue or, or a compassion fatigue, maybe that people are feeling in the West, you know, oh, geez, not another one of those images of, yeah. of poor children again, you know? And I love what you said about poverty, by the way, it's about broken relationships. It's about injustice. This isn't just about money. So again, <laughs> huge question, Michael, and I apologize yeah. on one level, but, no. but I think, you know, are, are Canadians giving enough? Are we involved? What can we do to up the ante a little bit? Can we, you know, are we turning a blind eye? Well, one of the things I think we have to recognize is that these are huge questions. And huge questions and complex questions can't always just get a simple response. Yeah, of That's, course. Sometimes, sometimes compassion fatigue, you know, we hear that idea, or donor fatigue kicks in because organizations like mine put out a simple idea that says this will change the world. Right. Uh, if we do this one thing. And in fact, the world is more complicated than that, right? Um, the, the other thing I think That's I good. would say is it is easy to be confronted with poverty and injustice in a way that can make you cynical. 
I don't think that's where we're called from. And from my perspective, even though I've seen really difficult things, uh, I continue to remain hopeful. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about right. it. So, you know, it's, there are, my starting point in dealing with tough stuff that I see when I travel around the world is to say, I feel terrible about this. This makes me cry. This makes me sad. This makes me angry. This makes me frustrated. But in the middle of that, where I've seen, I've seen that God shows up with this, this powerful idea of hope. A couple of places mm. come to mind. I was in Nepal immediately after the humanitarian, yes, uh, the, the earthquake, and I was with World Vision in its humanitarian response. Immediately, I was there just about 24 hours after the earthquake. Wow. Okay. Terrible devastation. I guess. Yeah. And we heard story after story of heartache and, and, and loss. But even in the midst of some of the very worst stories, there were these stories. Uh, sparks of, of hope and heroism. In particular, I was in a, I was in a, um, in a remote village, and you, we basically turned the corner, and there was devastation. Something like 40 of the 42 houses in, the, in that village had collapsed. Wow, crazy. Just... All we saw were piles of bricks. I spoke to a man whose daughter-in-law, uh, a young mom, uh, eight, months, eight months pregnant, actually, died when her house collapsed around her, of course, her unborn baby as well. Terrible disaster, you know, in a, in a heartbeat, destroying a marriage, destroying a family. But the story was that she actually gave her life for the five-year-old daughter that she sheltered with her own body wow. as, as the, the house collapsed right. around her. And that little girl is living. So, and, and, you know, being reunited with her father. Now, that's a terrible tragedy, and I can only imagine the grief and heartache. But there's an example of heroism, an sure. example of somebody giving something sacrificially, and that inspires me rather than turns me cynical. I was in northern Uganda a few years ago, visiting, sitting around a circle with, with uh, soldiers who had been kidnapped from their families, these boys, when they were just, just young boys and were forced to become child soldiers with the Lord's Resistance Army. Hmm. Unspeakable examples of, of things that they were forced to do. But here they were sitting around saying, we want to re-engage with our community. We know what we did was wrong. We want to find reconciliation and hope. And I see the way that the community members and family members were responding. There's something in the middle of that that tells me God's at work in this. That, that, and, and so when we talk about this with Canadians and trying to get outside of the idea of donor fatigue, it's about trying to tell those stories, yeah. trying to say that, that it's not just about a magic, you know, a lever that we pull if we just give enough uh, loonies down a, a tube or something that, that poverty will be gone. It's way more complicated than that. It's about relationship. It's about partnership. And I believe that we can connect with Canadians in that way that by, by sharing that. I think Canadians are smart enough to get that. And Because what I've seen is that when we do connect with them in that, in that way, telling these stories, first of all, anchoring in a reality, yep. but also talking about what's possible and the hope in the midst of despair, people respond. It's a compelling vision. And our challenge at World Vision is to try to be as creative as we can, as innovative as we can, in getting those ideas and those stories out there. Yeah, no, that I, was I, a long response. No, to your it's great. It's but. really good. I really wanted you to sort of roll there. I mean, so one of one of my issues is I I have a tendency to sort of cut off and say, "Hey, can you clarify that point?" And that's the, I guess, the burden of having read way too much philosophy in my life. But but 
Um, yeah, this whole idea of telling stories. I mean, I think I think the burden of responsibility is on World Vision in that sense. You know, uh, you guys have the capacity and you have the ability to, to to sort of tell a new story and a fresh story in a way I think that, frankly, can attend to some of these aspects of donor fatigue and compassion fatigue. It's, uh, but I, I love your your notion about hope and and, and inspiration versus cynicism. I guess you could say. Um, you know, in line of this notion of complexity and, and, you know, nuanced approaches and so on, do you think, you know, Stephen Lewis has said in Race Against Time, and I think I certainly would agree and others do too, but do you think gender, justice, and education, do you think those are the two? Are they, are they kind of the silver, silver bullets to sorting this all out, if you will? Well, I, I don't know if I'd say they're necessarily silver bullets, but I certainly think that when we look at the causes of poverty, we have to look at the political and economic situations of the countries we're working from our grassroots experience and from the results that we see, not just from our organization, but from others. If you address education, you address the future of a community. And particularly if you can help uh, work on uh, gender equality or diversity and, and encourage, you know, if you invest in girls going to school, that's a very powerful mm-hmm. combination. And that's something that's, that's been significant for us. I just came back... Uh, about a month ago from India, I was traveling with some of our board of directors who were seeing our work uh, firsthand, and we were up in um, Rajasthan in a, in, a, in a fairly rural community, fairly fairly conservative in terms of uh, their views of, of women and, 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 and uh, gender issues, uh, an agrarian you know, rural context. What was so remarkable to me were, were meeting these savings groups that World Vision had focused mm-hmm. on in the midst of all the other things that they could do. They worked on these self-help savings groups with women who were basically able to contribute just a handful of rupees every month working together. And we met one group that in just five years had set aside a significant amount. They were now talking like empowered people who had control over their destiny, that they were not just focused on what others were telling them to do, but there was a confidence there that was remarkable for any of the places that I've met. And then we also visited children's clubs, mostly with women, with girls, who were, were, were drawing these amazing pictures of, in a very careful way, about what's our community look like now, what did it look like before, and most importantly, what do we dream of mm. in the future? Mm. And you know what they drew on every single one of the posters that they showed us? There was a picture of a boy and a girl holding hands, and, and they're, you know, the, the mother holding both the girl's hand and the boy's hand. This idea that in that community where there has been in the past this idea that, that boys or men right. are valued more highly. Uh, their vision is that gender equality is going to be one of the key wow. uh, key areas for them. And that wasn't just something that we said at the at the Sustainable Development Goals right. of the United Nations. Right. You know, that's one there. Yeah, that's not that it's, in, the, it's, in the community that the grassroots level where World Vision is working. It's top top down and bottom up. I mean, this is this exactly. isn't just an academic theory. This is actually making contact with reality on the ground. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to wrap it up shortly, Michael, and I really apologize for that because I think I could spend the rest of the afternoon chatting with you <laughs> about a variety of things, but I'm sure you have other things to do. Um, you, you wrote a letter, somebody wrote a letter, I think you, I recently saw it, it was uh, a World Vision piece about a boy you, na- uh, you met, and I think it was in Nepal, and you told, Bitu, is that the name? Yeah, between in, yeah. in India, can, actually. Can, why, don't, why don't we wrap up our conversation today? Michael Messenger, by the way, with us today uh, from, from World Vision, uh, president of World Vision, all of, what was it, 87 days? 
88 by the time. 88 days, that's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, why don't you tell us about that? And if you wouldn't mind just, and maybe maybe I'm answering my own question here, but I also wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, we talked a tiny bit about cynicism and so on. And how do you, how do you recharge? How do you stay hopeful? How is it, you know, is it, is it going to church on Sundays? Is it, re, is it your wife? Is it your family? You know, because I think that's really important for all of us to keep in mind, you know, that there is, yeah. there is some good news here. And I think this story of Batu is awesome. Well, and, and, and let me just say before that, the answer is yes <laughs> to all of those. <laughs> I, think, I think the only way that we as humans, none of us are super, superhuman that I've ever met before, and I'm certainly not. You know, like, we get used to seeing some tough things sometimes, but mm-hmm. it, it never gets easy. And I respond emotionally to, to hurt and concern and pain, and it's something you have to share with others. Uh, I build a, a network of friends and advisors who will listen to me in my good times and bad. Certainly my family, my wife, and my kids are, are critical. I have to take time out and invest in them. Finding a community that, you know, and, and recognize that there's something bigger than ourselves. I, right, I personally right. just look to God and, and Jesus' example to say, that's what it looks like, and I believe in that. So if I do believe that that's what the future holds, then that brings me hope and it brings me comfort, mm-hmm. even, even when I can be open to God to say, I don't understand how this possibly can happen. But... You know, that probably is a good segue to the, the interaction that I had with a little boy, not so little now, he's about 15, named okay. Bitu. In, he lives in the slums of New Delhi, mm. the informal settlements. His family uh, used to be rag pickers, so they were right. uh, basically beggars. Uh, they moved up a little bit, and his father now sold uh, girls' hair uh, items in the, in the market. But... We actually tried to get to Bitu twice because the first day it was in the middle of the monsoon rains and, and unfortunately all of the sewers overflow. So in the area where we, he lives, which is kind of like a labyrinth of, of makeshift housing, when you look around it's pieces of cardboard and corrugated iron and sticks and I mean, it's hard to imagine that people would, it's a little bit like walking into a, somebody who's taken a garbage dump and right. kind of fashioned it into a, into a series of dwellings that just go on and on and on. We couldn't get there the first day because the, the sewers, which are, are not covered, were backing up. So we did, though, have a chance to go and meet him. And Bitu is just a, a boy that that I just think speaks to the, the kind of the things that we've been talking about today. In the midst of despair, mm-hmm. from our perspective, you see hope. So Bitu got connected with World Vision's Child Restoration Project, which is funded by Canadians. It's not a child sponsorship program. It's not even community development. It's a bit more focused, hmm. teaching life skills, valuing education, providing tutoring to kids, helping to, to work on gender issues. Uh, Bitu connected with them both uh, for a chance to, to uh, support his schooling and also through activities and social activities, keeping him out of some of the the downside of that kind of environment, which are getting caught into the drug world and right. and some of those negative pieces, and it's, he's now a, a he, he's a an award winning cricketer in his little community. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! And so here's a kid who's going. You know, his his dad uh, is is able now to 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 help support his family at least on a basic level, and his, his sister goes to school as well. But he talks very fondly about the future. Now he's got a goal right now. He wants to be a professional cricket player, which Boy, you want to support as best you can, but he knows that that that's probably a long shot. Um, and he's he's now connected uh, 
uh, in his schooling and is carrying on. And what's more, and I think this is what really touches me in situations like this, is that he also volunteers in the, the program that he was part of for so long. So he sits down as a mentor to some of the younger uh, children right. and yes. modeling for them what does it mean to, to follow up on, on schooling, to make that a priority even in the yeah. of a really difficult, challenging living situation. And so it was just a privilege for me to spend time with him and his family for a long time. This is not just a uh, face on a screen. It's not yeah. just a, yep. a, a something you read well, about. But this is a living, breathing human being, boy, with every bit of potential as my son does, ha- has, almost the same age. I've heard, and, you, yeah, yeah, you know, the, the, the face-to-face, the human contact, by the hand, you're in the, I think in the, in the article that you wrote, you talked about, the water up to your knees, maybe. I mean, it was yeah. deep. I mean, how can, <laughs> you can't put a price tag on that kind of uh, um, tangibility, really. That's right. And you kind of, at some level, Michael, must say, as the president, how do we get every one of our donors over here to see this? Yeah. Right. Because I wish I could do that, David. That would be my because I know it would not only hey, it would help the bottom line of our organization because people would be committed to the work that we do, but it, they would be changed. Yeah, of course. So yeah. one of our challenges for us is we think about what's next. And innovation in our organization is how can I, um, we call it re- reducing the proximity gap. That is, I'm asking you to help support a child like Bitu who is on the other side of the world in some of the most challenging contexts you can be. You can't go, it, it's pretty difficult for you just to go around the corner and, and, and meet Bitu and see him. It's not like you give to a local hospital, which is really important. You can give to an x-ray machine. Well, you can go and see the x-ray machine and touch it if you want to. You might even get a test done there, right? So there's this idea of there's, 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 there's a lot of proximity, but there's a gap to these sure. stories around the world. But we believe that some of the technology that we have, whether it's social media or just the use of the Internet or new tools of, of video and other things, can help us begin to tell those stories better so that children like Bitu can give us a clearer sense of what his or her community is actually like. We can begin to build those relationships and partnerships. So it's not just something that happens over there and that the money just disappears uh, and we hope for the best and maybe you get a letter once a year, but it's a more dynamic, engaged connection. Uh, because I think that we want to get to the limited extent that we can to try to find those those points of connection so that, that Canadians can feel what it's like to to walk for a few minutes in the waterlogged shoes of Bitu. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I've I've experienced that with donors, with others, uh, and like you say, it's it, it, how can it not change you on some level, right? It's mm-hmm. I, I've also heard Michael, there's uh, some pretty interesting things potentially happening with sort of a virtual reality. Uh, 3D-like nature of fundraising, how you can, you know, put on these goggles, now you're going to get to see digitally, of course, what uh, things are really like on the ground. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It kind, yeah, of, well, kind, kind of scares me on one level, actually. Yeah. And, you know, in the midst of all of these things, any innovation like that, you want to look at it and say, is this, first of all, it, it may be too soon. Right, uh, right. Because some things can just be a bit gimmicky, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, exactly uh, or, right. Or... or it, or the last thing we want to do is reduce something significant like poverty to just a form of entertainment. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If so, and it, not to mention the fact that innovations like this cost a lot of money. Uh, some things are easier, of course, but it, it. But we want to be good stewards of the resources that we have. So we're trying to say, how can we do this in an effective way, and in a way that also doesn't put undue burden on our staff who are right. working with people like BG. Right. If they're just about trying to feed the the media pipeline for, for donors back in Canada, 
uh, they may not be the best use of their time either. Yeah. So these are all these are all the, the challenges, but both uh, opportunities, I guess, of, of some of the new technologies. Michael, thanks so much for your time today. I, I, I like I said, uh, always uh, cut too short uh, these interviews. I really appreciate your thoughts and your insight, your your positive energy. It's amazing. Um, I hope day eighty eight is good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and well, and I look forward. I do really do look forward to chatting to you again. I look forward to that as well, David. And and you know what? I I invite people, you know your listeners to to check out World Vision if they haven't seen it for a while. Go to worldvision.ca. Just take a look at some of the things that we're doing. Um, and, uh, and you know, watch the space, I guess. There's lots of new ideas out there, and if they've got ideas for us, we'd love to hear them too. Uh, that's excellent. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.